You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Lauren Fultonberg. Is there anything more powerful and more powerfully divisive than music? We cling to our favorite songs and albums, dismiss others as trash, and argue about what's better. On this episode of Radio Ed, we're settling the debate. Mm, kind of. With the Grammys right around the corner, we wanted to know, what makes a song good? So we asked a man who knows what it's like to make a hit. Music professor Matt Legg has mixed Grammy winners, Grammy nominees, and top-charting songs. He's been in the business for 13 years, so he knows some of its skill and some of its luck. Because in the recording studio, we just never know who might walk in the door. Yes, especially I'm from Nashville, so that happened a lot, being a music town. Um, you know, one time I was doing, uh, I worked with Peter Frampton for like four years, and one time we were we were sitting around recording, and uh, there was a ring on the door at the doorbell, and it turns out it was Ricky Skaggs. <laughs> and he had stopped by to just show off some new mandolin he had bought and just sit around and, and talk because he's good friends with Peter and uh, Peter's writing partner, uh, Gordon. And so, yeah, stuff like that would happen. Um, very odd stuff. And my whole involvement with the Grammys sort of started that way. Taylor Swift had booked our studio to record some stuff for an MTV program that was, uh, it was, what was it? It was some kids from high school that knew that they could potentially take some celebrity to, uh, to prom. And so they didn't know it was her. <laughs> and so, uh, the, the small MTV crew showed up to the studio. They sort of like, we played it on the TV and like they filmed her reactions and her friend was there. And you know, it was one of those sort of pieces. And, and this never happens. And I still can't believe it happened to this day, but um, it, it just sort of happened organically where she looked around at the studio and was like, oh, this is a really nice place. Um, we have that song for Grey's Anatomy that we need to do. Why don't we just do it? And then people started showing up and before you know it, <laughs> we had the song White Horse. And it was it was really great. And, you know, at that time, I was an assistant at the studio. So I was showing up just for a regular day of work. I didn't expect, you know, I expected there to be a film crew and I could take it easy. But <laughs> then we were called into action. And, uh, and so it was really fun, man. And, you know, I, it just doesn't happen that way normally. It's very usually very structured where it's like we're showing up at 10 a.m. with these players and we're going to play to this time and then we're done. Um, but this just was so organic and uh, that's what I really loved about it. <laughs> <laughs> White Horse, uh, a Grammy-winning record. Did you know the first time that you heard it that that was going to be a big song? I'm going to be completely honest <laughs> <laughs> on this. Um, Honestly, to me, it felt like a, a filler song that like, <laughs> you put it like track six, but people just, it did something to people. And that's, you know, a, a testament to the, the power of music and why, you know, uh, people can't necessarily make the call with every, with every song, what it's going to be, you know, um, a lot of the times, um, the people's reaction is going to, is going to determine the success. And I was very surprised, uh, a, that that made the record and B that it won the Grammys that it did. Cause it was several, I can't remember the ones, but it was like, I think country vocal of the year and country song of the year and just all of this. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say it was a bad song by any means. I loved it. It was great. But, um, but yeah, it, it blindsided me completely. I didn't even know it was on the record till my mom called me 
And she's like, hey, you have a, a credit on the Taylor Swift record. I was like, no, mom, that was for like a TV show. She's like, no, I will send you a copy. <laughs> I didn't believe it till I saw the copy. <laughs> Everyone needs a proud mom to highlight yeah, their accomplishments, right? Thanks, right? mom. <laughs> this kind of leads me to, to a bigger question that I had, which is with any award show, I mean, do the best songs win or get nominated for Grammys? I think best songs is pretty subjective. So that's kind of the beauty and, and, and the curse of music is, uh, uh, so, you, so yes and no. I think there are times when, when the best quote unquote songs get it, but I also don't think that um, any one person can be an authority on what the best song is. If it moves you and it moves a lot of people, then it, it deserves to be there. I don't care if it's Old Town Road or if it's if it's Hallelujah. You know, it deserves to be there. You're a recording engineer. Correct. What does that mean? Okay, so a recording engineer, in my opinion, you're first and foremost there to facilitate creativity. And what I mean by that is an artist has uh, come in and booked a studio and has entrusted you um, to, to sort of lay the groundwork in the room to make them to make them bring their vision to light in the easiest way possible. So um, first and foremost, you have to be really great with people. Um, so that's that's a huge part of it. And then beyond that, there's um, technical things. When a band comes in, you have an indivi individual microphone for um, for individual pieces of, of gear. So say it's a drum kit, um, you'll have you know probably up to 12, 14 microphones on that to capture each individual uh, drum as well as the room that they're recording in. You have a dozen microphones that are set up on one drum kit? <laughs> it is overkill. We're, uh, we're known for, uh, for living in excess most of the time, but <laughs> when you have all those microphones, you can make everything a little bit more have a bit more of a vivid picture whereas um you know in the early days of recording they were far away from the source and if so if you listen to some older jazz stuff especially you can hear that but beyond all the nerdy stuff what you really need to to do is to be able to make someone comfortable in a space that is very intimidating so being a people person i think is very important for a recording engineer and then you also have uh the, the producer and the artist uh, vision that you have to so you have to listen through their ears as well so you sort of facilitate all of this creativity that's going on in the room you make sure it gets onto tape or in the computer properly and you make sure it sounds the best it can possibly be and hopefully if all of those elements fall together even if you do it by accident and they walk they your client walks out of the room that day happy you've done your job so I was in high school theater back in those days that nobody should go look up on social media. <laughs> Google it um, now. Yeah. And there was this expression that the techies used to use, like, you know, the actors are, are great, but without us, you'd be naked and in the dark. <laughs> Is that applicable to, to the job you do? Yeah, and I don't think that's necessarily a negative thing. I think what we're doing as techies, as technical people, are... Uh, are giving you a stage to where you don't have to think about any of that stuff. You're not worried about, oh, is my microphone going to work? Are the lights going to be on? It, all you do is show up and you perform. So that's one less thing off your plate that you have to worry about. And that's what I try to provide for artists that come in the studio is I don't want them to think about a single computer problem or anything. If it were up to me, all of that would vanish into the background. Um, so yeah, as technical people, 
that that quote is true and I don't think it's negative. It's Grammy time and everybody is studying these records and, and what makes these records great. And I'm curious how much you think a recording engineer contributes to the greatness of a Grammy winning song? I think heavily, especially nowadays. And I don't think a lot of the times engineers kind of get the credit maybe they that, that they deserve because there's so, there's so many more aspects than just showing up and turning knobs because you know for instance if you're working with a singer you have to keep them motivated and keep them positive so it's sort of a little bit of psychology thrown in there <laughs> and and you're not just um, fulfilling your own sort of desires and visions it's also the producer so you're listening through their ears and sort of trying to steer things gently without being pushy. Um, so I think that, that we play a really big role in the overall sound especially, but also just uh, the way you get there. Yeah. Do you remember when you were working on White Horse, any specific choices that were made in the studio, anything that, that you did to enhance the arrangement? I'm trying to think. Um, no, that one was pretty well hammered out. Um, her producer had it in his head, um, and he sat down and la layered up guitars and stuff like that. And we sort of built the track like that. We didn't have the whole band in it at one time. Um, but that one had a clear um, direction as far as where they were going. What I did find interesting about that is at the time, people were giving her a hard time about her live vocal performances. And it's like, come on, man. Um, any Anyone who sings, they're going to want to redo something and what i will say about her is she is such a hard worker never complained once anything the producer wanted she was she was on it so um there were some vocal things that that the producer enhanced uh arrangement wise and some stuff they did outside of our studio before the song was completed um that they enhanced but for the most part it was pretty well thought out and well executed with good and bad in music being so subjective in your opinion what do you think makes a song Grammy worthy? I think first and foremost, it's the, uh, the arrangement and the performance. So what I tell artists when we're working together, especially to establish uh, um, a comfort level with them, is, is play this and pretend like none of the microphones or any of the gear exists around you. And what I'm looking for is a performance. So if, and I think that's ultimately what moves people. Like, uh, my Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. Huge song, huge song, but you can hear the emotion in her voice. She doesn't sing every chorus the same way. It's, it builds on itself and you can hear the emotion. And so, yeah, things like that move people. We've kind of gotten away from full performances in recent years. Um, a lot of it's moved to software um, production and I'm not against that, it sounds great, um, but you can lose some emotion of like a, an electric guitar player. I can hear in the fingers when they're into it and when they're bored. And <laughs> I think we've lost some of that um, with some of the in the box production. But um, yeah, I mean, to get back to your question, um, <laughs> the, the arrangement and the performance are, are key, I think. And that's what sells records and moves people and gets people on the dance floor and all of that. So. How does it move people and and it will be successful if it moves them if it moves a big group of people what is the music that moves you 
Oh, wow. Good question. <laughs> it's sort of all over the map. So I started as a DJ. That's kind of how I got into recording and realized I could record those performances. And so um, I always had kind of a big catalog because um, you want to you want to not play the exact same record the guy, bef you know, the set before you had just played. So you want a deep catalog. So for me, um, any sort of Latin rhythm always moves me. Uh, Daft Punk moves me. Um, Franz Ferdinand, um, sort of like newer rock that that infuses some of the dance music. I think gets some movement. Any four on the floor, I'm I'm out there. <laughs> I'm on the dance floor. <laughs> Is there somebody on on the list of Grammy nominations that particularly resonates with you that you really enjoy listening to? Yes, uh, Cage the Elephant. That's by far my favorite band. Um, my friend Jeremy in Nashville um, recorded their record, and we had. Jeremy and I had done a record together in the past, and I've just always loved him. He's a great guy, and so I'm super pumped for that. Um, I really hope they take it home, and I don't know why they wouldn't take it home because it's a great record. <laughs> <laughs> Old Town Road is not your is not your choice. <laughs> That's not the resonant one. No, no, but I, I will say Billy Ray is a great dude. Um, he did randomly show uh, to get back to this like this will happen if you're in the music world. People will randomly show up. So we had a session one day, and it was just a, a random songwriter, and he kept saying that his cousin Billy Ray was going to show up and sing background vocals <laughs> at lunch, and I only know of one Billy Ray. So everybody, I think everyone kind of collectively in the session was like, okay. But sure enough, after lunch, in rolls, uh, sunglass, sunglasses <laughs> wearing, full trench coat, like hat wearing Billy Ray Cyrus, there he was. Um, so, no, Billy Ray's a great dude, and I, you know, I I could be caught jamming to Old Town Road <laughs> <laughs> if you had to, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, when Billy Ray Cyrus or Taylor Swift or Peter Frampton stop by the studio, how well do you get to know them? How close are you working with them? Um, well, so the Taylor Swift thing, I wasn't like super. I mean, we like we're hanging during the day and, and stuff like that, but it was kind of a one and done sort of thing. Um, you know, I got, I got paid for that day and that was it. Um, someone like Frampton, he bought the studio that I, that all this stuff happened in. And, um, we became pretty close because I worked with him for four years. Um, I initially was going to help him get all of his gear loaded into the studio, just help him get settled. And that would be that. But he started calling me for sessions and I think he kind of liked, I, well, we mutually liked the way that we uh, worked together, and he kept calling me for it. So with someone like that, we were, we were really close. Really anyone that you do an entire record with, you become close to. Um, there's sort of no way around it. You're in the room with them for 10 plus hours a day. Um, you, are, you are taking care of their song baby and that Every song, I, I, I'm a believer that with a songwriter, every song means the world to them, and you should respect that. And if you do, um, you become very close to, to the writer because you're giving it your all to their, their, uh, their song baby. So, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, with Peter, I became really close, and um, yeah, we worked a lot together over the four years. Uh, Taylor was a one-and-done sort of thing. Um, who else did you oh Billy Ray oh, same thing but it, it was hilarious at the end of the session uh, Billy Ray was like 
well, Miley's in town. If any of y'all want to want to meet her, uh, here's my phone number. And I, I was telling, I was having dinner with with like my wife's family later that day, and I told my nieces what he said, and they were like, "You didn't get his number?" <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, guys. No. <laughs> <laughs> with with Peter Frampton, I feel like he's sort of this mysterious figure. You know, the the gigantic yeah. live double album, and I think that's most most people only know that. Yeah. about him. What is something that you learned about Peter Frampton from working with him that maybe other people wouldn't know? He is an amazing engineer. If he weren't one of the world's greatest guitar players, he would be one of the world's greatest engineers. And he taught me how to splice tape. He taught me how to align a tape machine. I mean, these are very complicated things that people don't really know nowadays. And what people don't realize about Peter is he was in the studio from, you know, a teenager. He was actually recording reel-to-reel at his house. His dad bought him uh, two reel-to-reel machines, and he would bounce tracks back and forth on those. So even as a kid, he was, like, into it. Um, it's ironic then that his his smash Frampton comes alive is a non-studio. I know, album. right? Yeah. I know, I know. That's hilarious. Yeah, no, but he's he was really great, and and I learned a lot from him, and uh, so yeah, that's what a lot of people don't realize, and and because a lot of artists are very uh, hands off in that aspect, but not Peter Man. He's he would be the world's best engineer if he wasn't the world's best guitar player so <laughs> that's rare huh yeah very did you also work with Ringo Starr I think I saw on your your resume I did yeah um so that was that was through Peter he went out to Ringo's place um and they wrote two songs for his uh for Ringo's record uh at Ringo's house and they sort of one of them they recorded on Peter's iPhone <laughs> And the other, <laughs> high tech <laughs> yeah very high tech and then the other one they had uh they had sort of built a track and then sent it to us so uh, Ringo wasn't unfortunately was not with us when we were recording the stuff but um we were sending files back and forth uh over the two songs so I recorded Peter's um vocals guitar and talk box on one of the songs gotta have it gotta have it yeah every time i'd get giddy every i would get giddy every time that that thing would come out just because it's like that's the thing you know that's the peter frampton thing and i, I never there was never a moment i didn't get giddy when he was like maybe we should try the talk box so, yes we should 100 <laughs> percent, no doubt <laughs> do you get starstruck I was just talking to an intern at a studio about this the other day normally no and and here's one thing that might be kind of weird about me is like I don't really dig into uh I I don't stay super current on on music to be totally honest with you um so uh, a lot of the times when people would come into the studio and especially because country wasn't really my thing um starting out in Nashville I didn't know who these people were and I think that's helped me not be starstruck and not make myself um look bad because of that um because I, I a lot of the times I don't know even Peter when he poked his head in to like look at the studio I had no idea who it was I was mixing and the producer said you know who that was I was like no <laughs> so I I think that's helped me a lot and 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 helped me treat people as people as opposed to you're a superstar let me like act weird or or overextend myself just because you are this person so i and i think that helps with the comfort level when you're working with someone on a record to look past all of the all of the fame and all that stuff and to see them as the person um so but all that being said, um, <laughs> I was talking to this intern the other day, and we were talking about um, 
who you could possibly be most starstruck around. And I think Beck would probably do it. I would just that's really, yours. Yeah, I'd probably freeze up or just like <laughs> sit at the computer and just be like, oh my God, this is Beck and like try to do my best. You know, like <laughs> that would be my starstruck moment, probably. <laughs> we were talking earlier about. Um, contemporary music that you do like, yeah. and and you had mentioned Billie Eilish was somebody that, oh, yeah. that you really thought was was great, and you're not the only one apparently. Um, <laughs> youngest nominee in in the big four categories yeah. at the Grammys this year. What do you think makes her so good? Um, I think it goes back to the arrangements. Some of her arrangements are unlike anything I've ever heard, and it's so interesting. And she can be so simple about some things, but you're hanging on for every word. So I think that goes back to the arrangement thing that I mentioned earlier about what makes a good uh, Grammy-nominated record. Um, that's part of it, and her performances. Like, she has one song where she's practically whispering, you can't hardly hear anything, but you're hanging on for every word, and it's just, oh, it's so great. So yeah, her, her arrangements, I think especially, um, it's not like she's hitting like, Mariah Carey licks on her vocals or anything because she doesn't have to because it's interesting enough without it. Hmm. So that's what I love about her. I want to drill down on on just one detail to make sure that I fully understand it because sure. you've referenced a great mix or or a great arrangement. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, How can I tell if an arrangement is great? Well, I don't. I don't think that you can tell consciously. I think it, it happens in your subconscious and the song could be on in the background and you notice it. And it's one of those inexplicable human things, you know, that we just, we kind of gravitate to, to rhythms and chord structures um, naturally as people. So I think that's a, a large part of it is that we can't explain it. And that's why it's so frustrating sometimes with audio because there's rarely a right answer or rarely one answer. And I think it comes down to the human aspect. I feel like we've been circling this, but I, I've read recently some headlines about formulas for, for music and making a song appealing to people is really just a matter of these chord changes or this structure. Uh, do you buy into that? I don't that? disagree with you. I don't disagree with you at all. If you look at the one, four, five chord structure, you can pretty much mash up any hit song from the eighties till now. And matter of fact, if you uh, look online, there's a, 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 are they Irish or something like that? There's a couple of guys that, uh, that do that. They play through that, that chord change and it's like 20 songs that they string together. <clears throat> so yeah, I think it would be short sighted to say that, that, that chord, those chord changes don't move people. Uh, I think it's absolutely a thing. Um, that and, and the rhythm. Although, uh, being a Beatles fan, I know a lot of my <laughs> fellow Beatles fans were a bit upset when uh, whatever this algorithm that was analyzing structure came back with Obla Di Obla Da as, as the best Beatles song of all time <laughs> as a result. But I don't think that makes many people's shortlists. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and we have our producer shaking her head no <laughs> in the studio here, too. Paul McCartney played in Denver in 2010, and oh, I was cool. there with my family, and wow. he claimed that it was like the first time that he had played Obla Di Obla Da on tour um, huh. with his with his band. And, um, it's not one we get requested that often. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps there's a reason for that. In terms of the product that you put out, to circle back to the Grammys mm -hmm. one more time, a little chorus of Grammys here, um, how has the product changed what's on the nomination list now compared to what's on the nomination list 13 years ago? 
Well, I think it's uh, the lines are blurred a lot more. You have um, much more crossover. Like it was a big deal in the early '90s to have like a crossover R and B and rap thing, you know. And now it's like rappers are singing. Like <laughs> that was unheard of. So I, I think there's a lot of genre bending now, which I love. I think it's um, it's made uh, just to harp on rap a little bit a little bit longer. It's made it much more musical, and um, I enjoy it. A lot more especially the mainstream stuff a lot more than I did in the early 2000s and and things like that so I think it's helped out a lot uh, bands like Franz Ferdinand that 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 sort of been dance with rock you know that sort of thing I think has changed the most um, you don't just have here's an Aerosmith record it's rock and you know exactly what it's gonna be and it's gonna be nominated for the rock Grammy um, you have much more crossover now do you watch the Grammys? Do you pay attention to who wins? I've never watched the Grammys, even when a record I worked on was on it. What they've retroactively done with the Grammys is if you've been affiliated with any Grammy-winning record, you can pay 50 bucks, and uh, they will send you like a particip participation certificate. Um, like a consolation got, prize. Yeah. I got paid $250 on that record, on the Taylor Swift record, to to spend any money <laughs> on any sort of thing like that seems silly to me. Are you the anomaly here? Do Grammys I, matter to I people in the industry? So. I think so. I think Grammys matter a lot. And uh, I mean, trust and believe if I was nominated, I would be watching or or be there, one of the two. Uh, I know it costs cost some, some change to, to show up there. But yeah, I mean, if I was affiliated more maybe I, I would watch it but yeah I think I'm an I'm an anomaly because I think people put a lot of stock in that as they should it's the ultimate prize I mean that's what it's not what we're working for but it's really nice to be recognized here's a, a weird thing with being an engineer so all of these songs come through come through your world and what you're concentrating on is I need to line up this many days to make my day rate so that I can pay my mortgage um, so and it takes many months after you get done, especially if you're involved in the production, like in the recording of the band. It takes many months until these things come out. So some stuff I'd forget about. And I just there's a there's a credits list online that when something's submitted, it has your name on it. You it adds it to your page. Sometimes I wouldn't know till I check that. And I'm like, oh, I remember now. So, yeah, I think um, when you're working on a level like Nashville, you're more worried about what's next as opposed to looking back and maybe that's why i feel the way i do about watching the grammys is i'm wanting to know like okay that's fine but what's what's the next thing if you want to hear the music that matt's worked on and the music that inspires him we made you a mixtape check out our website du.edu slash radio ed for the link plus show notes and all of the du newsroom's greatest hits don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and then check back every other Tuesday for a new episode. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer, Tamara Chapman our managing editor, Aaron Pendergast mixed our sound, James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Lauren Fultenberg, and this is Radio Ed. Radio Ed.